Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, I'm Cathy Sheridan. It was a trial that gripped the nation, the murder of Bobby Ryan, otherwise known by his DJ name, Mr Moonlight. In May this year, nearly eight years after Bobby's sudden disappearance, Pat Quirk was sentenced to life in prison for his murder. But it wasn't a straightforward case. It was tangled up in secret affairs, lies, land, jealousy and a whole lot of other things. The country was fascinated by the women at the heart of this story. Mary Lowry, the ex-lover of Pat and Bobby's new girlfriend, and Imelda Quirk, Pat's wife, who stood by her husband through the entire trial and his subsequent guilty verdict. Journalist Catherine Fegan was in court every single day of the 15-week trial. She spent months interviewing people connected to the case for her new book, the murder of Mr Moonlight. Catherine spoke to me about the case and why she decided to write a book about it. Catherine, for the benefit of anybody who's been living in a cave for the past few years, can you tell us about Mr Moonlight and why he was the most unlikely murder victim in all of the cast of characters that you portray in this book? Okay, well, just to go back, I suppose, to explain the story, maybe from the start, um, the story concerns Mary Lowry. She was a mother of three, uh, from Tipperary. Her husband had died in 2007 and about three years after he died, um, she's in a bar one night in Tipperary town with a friend and she meets Mr Moonlight, um, Bobby Ryan, who's a DJ. He went by the name Mr Moonlight. They meet, um, they dance. Um, there's a spark between them. They have um, similar interests in, in music and she starts a relationship with Bobby. But what Bobby doesn't know at the time is that Mary has just ended a secret affair with her brother-in-law, Patrick Quirk. He's a farmer who's renting some land from her. And when Pat finds out about Mary's new boyfriend, he is not happy at all. Um, the affair between himself and Mary it was a secret affair. No, nobody in their family knew about it. Um, and effectively he was dropped for, for Mr Moonlight. He's not happy. He takes matters into his own hands and one morning in June 2011, as Mr Moonlight's leaving Mary's farm. He stayed the night there. He's heading off to go, go to work um, in his Mr Moonlight van and he's never seen again. Um, but what we, we find out is that almost uh, 22 months later, his body turns up on Mary's farm in an underground tank found by none other than Pat Quirk. Um, Pat Quirk went on trial in January of this year for the murder of Bobby Ryan. He was found guilty and he's he's currently serving a life sentence for the murder. Now, 
Mary Lowry and Pat Quirk are actually intriguing characters, aren't they? First of all, Mary Lowry, um, she was a young widow. I mean, her husband was only in his early 40s, I think, when he died after a long uh, illness with cancer. So Mary had been through the mill even at that point. Three young boys um, left to run a farm on her own, mm-hmm. uh, but left quite comfortable by Martin, her husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, was, she was quite wealthy, Catherine. Yes, well, as you say, she, she was widowed. Her husband had, had died. He had been um, uh, quite clever with his investments, his off-farm investments when he was married. Um, he'd invested in a lot of property, um, so there was money in those investments. There was the farm um, in Tipperary, which was um, located on a very um, lucrative part of land in Tipperary town. Um, it was effectively on a, on a on a a quarry. There's a lot of sand underneath the farm, and it was valued at about uh, three million euro at the height of the boom. So she had the farm, she had the investments, uh, investments. Um, there was some money in, in life insurance and, and various other um, um, financial benefits. Um, and she was comfortable, but her husband had always dealt with the finances in the house, as is the case in, in a lot of, you know, homes. Um, she was the the mother to, to the children. She minded the children. She had a part-time job in the credit union. But her main role was to run the house and look after the, the, their, three, um, their three boys. And her husband, Martin, ran the farm and looked after the money um, and everything was very comfortable. So she's left very wealthy. Um, And one person in particular who knew the details of all these finances was Pat Quirk, her brother-in-law, because he himself had sort of dabbled in a couple of these investments with his his brother-in-law, Martin. So he was aware of the money that was involved. He knew that she had been left in a very comfortable position and he offered to help with those finances when she found herself widowed and she didn't really have much knowledge about how all those things sort of worked. So he stepped in with this offer to help. He stepped in at the woman's probably the most vulnerable time in her life. Yeah, well, we kind of go in, I go into that a bit in the book um, just to put a bit of context around Mary. You know, she came from a, a, a farming family herself her father had run a very, very small farm in Newport. She'd spent much of her life in, in Newport, never really ventured far from her family. Um, quite a secluded upbringing, um, traditional sort of rural upbringing on the farm, um, school, um, off to mass every Sunday, played a bit of camogie. Um, she met Martin when she was in her early 20s, Catherine. She, she, was, she, she was known as Giddy Mary. So Mary was no recluse herself. She was out there, very sociable. Um, and, but then Martin died. Martin became ill and died. And she was left in this position where she knew nothing about what was going, what was going on. And we have this man coming into the house who knows everything that's been going on and who begins to take over. Yeah, he begins to take over in the sense that, you know, he's on the farm, he starts to rent the land, so he's there every day attending to his dry stock. Um, He's also helping her with her finances um, under the guise of of extorting money from her, basically. Um, So he's he's a daily presence and, and, you know, she said in court that because he was there every day, you know, she obviously opened up to him. Um, she saw him as a source of support because he was her brother-in-law. She never really considered the fact that his, 
his motives would be, um, you know, less than than you know admirable toward her. So they're in daily contact, and at some point it becomes physical, and he's coming to the farm once a week. They're meeting in her bedroom. Um, and all of this is going on and nobody in the Larry family knows about it. Um, Pat's wife, Amelda, doesn't know anything about it. Um, her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law. the other side of the wall, doesn't know about it. Yeah, her mother-in-law was living on the farm. There's a, a granny flat next to the, the area where Mary and the children lived. So her, her mother-in-law is is there. She, she's basically in the same house, bar a wall, you know. So all of this is going under on under everyone's nose effectively um, but nobody knows about it so it's a secret that they have to keep because the ramifications of everybody knowing are just so catastrophic. Um, Pat Quirk or the what, what, I, I thought what was really interesting about your book Catherine was the picture you paint of him all the way through and there is something about him from the beginning that is deeply deeply questionable and you wonder how he ever had a friend to call his own. I mean, you give several examples, for example. I mean, we, we, we begin with him demanding compensation from Mary, from Mary for having bought her cattle, I presume, at a knockdown price. He then accuses her cattle of introducing infection into his herd and demands compensation for that. This is while he is using her for cash, sex. Priest have developed a relationship with her of some kind, as we know from his, his, uh, his, the various communications between them. But... I mean, there were other things he did that actually pointed a very accusing finger at him. For example, there was a story about a fridge freezer. Yeah, well, during the uh, research stages of the book, I spent a lot of time in Tipperary and I spoke to a lot of people who who know Pat very well. Um, Like you say, he wasn't a very popular character. I know that's very easy to say once someone has been, been convicted of murder. But long before that, he didn't really have many friends in the area and... Um, very quickly, a picture started to emerge of somebody who was um, very, had this real sense of entitlement in life, um, um, was always right, um, was never wrong, um, was re- really kind of gruff character. And some of the stories that that emerged of him painted that picture. You talk about the fridge freezer and this concerned, um, you know, a story I was told that, you know, Pat had a fridge freezer in the house that, that he, you know, it was faulty, it wasn't working, so he decided he needed to get, get rid of it. So he, he puts an ad in a paper and he sells it to a to a local, I think she was a single mother at the time, and she unwittingly buys this, this fridge freezer that it's, it's, it doesn't work. You know, he's... She, she, that apparently was using 10, a thousand times the rate of electricity yeah. it should have been using. So he sells her a dodge. You know, obviously that's very um, duplicitous kind of behaviour, but he didn't care, you know, and this is the thing. Well, you know, you know, I've got rid of it. It's not my problem. There was never any sense of conscience with Pat. He never felt that he had any moral duty to anyone. It was always me, 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 and I look after number one, um, regardless Both of the not vaccinating his herd and that sort of thing, which obviously had implications for neighbours' herds and that sort of yeah. thing. Oh. He really was a, 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 a nasty kind of character. Yeah, well, that's kind of the picture that was painted. And I suppose it, it could be traced back to his, his childhood. Some people had said that, you know, he came from um, a home with, with four sisters. They all went to school and um, they were well educated. And he was asked to stay behind and, and take the farm off his father when he became ill. So... He always kind of had a chip on his shoulder about that, apparently, that, you know, um, his life had sort of been set out for him with with no choice. 
Um, and on that note, he'd always said that, you know, he never wants the same fate for his own sons, that he wants them to go to university and do different things. Um, you know, and farmers who, who, who'd sort of worked alongside him said that they, they always got the impression that it was woe is me with Pat. You know, this is the life I've, I've had to live, you know, rather than the one I wanted to. And he saw himself as a mighty strategist. Mm. Uh, and others saw him as always having an ulterior motive. Um, he had a private face and a public face and no one trusted him. He married Imelda, who was another intriguing character in all of this because she was with him through thick and thin. I mean, one of the things I learned from your book is that they got up every single morning during that three-month trial. Was it three months? Three months, yeah. Just every single morning they left Tipperary on the train into Dublin, just the two of them, other people around them, other witnesses from Tipperary were also doing that travelling. But Imelda and Pat on that train every morning came into court. She sat there looking at him. They would sit on the second floor of the of the criminal court. She would go and ferry him the coffee and the food and all that sort of thing. She never left his side, Catherine. No, and it's still by his side, you know, remarkable loyalty in the face of so much um, deceit, so much grief, you know, and... You have to remember, Imelda is Mary's sister-in-law, of course, and her brother was Martin, Mary's husband. So um, the, the the family connect, connection is so central to all of this. You know, she uh, Imelda grew up on the Lowry farm um, and like like Mary, she, she met Pat at a very young age. Um, I don't think they either of them either had ever had another relationship. So it was always... Her and Pat at a young age, um, sh- she um, married him. Her moved to a farm n- not far away from her family farm, but in an area of land not so lucrative, not so fertile. And she watched as as Mary Lowry um, took over the family farm with her brother. Um, and her brother dies, so she has the grief of losing a brother. Um, then her husband embarks on this affair with her sister-in-law um, and in the midst of all of this she loses a son Alan at the age of 11. This happened I think August 2012 um, about a year after Bobby Ryan goes missing. Amelda at this stage doesn't know that her husband's had any involvement in that um, but there's a lot of local suspicion about what might have happened and on one day outside the farm her farm the the, um, the Quirk farm their youngest son, Alan, is tragically killed by, by, by Pat Quirk accidentally. Um, he, he drives over him with, with, with um, a trailer and, the, and the, the boy dies. So they're thrown into the midst of all this grief. Um, both the Quirk and Larry families, again, are, are in the spotlight. Um, this is when the search for Bobby is still continuing. Um, Imelda now knows about the affair between her sister-in-law and Pat. Um like I said, there's a lot of speculation about her her husband's involvement in a potential murder. Um and yet she still maintains this 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 loyalty to a man that maybe per, perhaps other people mightn't have stood by. And that continues when he's charged for murder. She's there by his side when it comes to trial, she's there by his side. Um and she is just one of those characters in the story that so many people were fascinated with. Um, so many pe- people asked the question, you know, what's keeping her there? Why hasn't she left him? You know, 
you know, how much love can you have for someone that would maintain um, that stance in the face of everything that went against him? But she, she you remained. Did you describe her in the book, Catherine, as, as tough, mm. guarded, aloof. Uh, somebody described her as a, a woman who likes her style, which sounded a little bit bitchy because mm. a lot of us like our style. But nonetheless, it's a picture of a woman who is stylish and who is reserved and for whom this is hell on earth then when the spotlight turns on them. Imelda, of course, is another victim in this story. But in the end, what is your theory about this? What do you think? They, they, had they a very good marriage? By all accounts, it seems to me, and this is just through the research for the book and covering the trial, that, um, you, you know, you mentioned the fact that Meld is a very strong character. A lot of people have kind of painted her as a, a sort of, you know, you know, the long-suffering wife, you know, this kind of weak, meek um, being. But I don't think that's correct because, um, you know, Quirk himself, he said that, you know, it, you know, in times of crisis, he always turned to Imelda because she is a very strong individual um, you know during the years when they were trying to better themselves financially and build their own farm you know I've been told that she was very much in partnership with him on that front you know getting bigger and getting better um, securing their future financially they did these investment courses um, together so um, in terms of how I view her um, I, I, I honestly believe that she came under the same spell or the same kind of control that Mary did with Pat, although Mary, you know, freed herself from it. He has to have some sort of control over these women to get them to to do the things that most other women would say they wouldn't. Um, and in all of this, I think her con- Imelda's concern is very much for the sons that she has who, who you know, have to, have to live on through all she of this. They've lost a sons. father. Yeah, she yeah. wants to keep it together. Um, but it's it's still remarkable to, to see, you know, if there was ever a time to to break free, it would have been when he was convicted. But she's maintained her loyalty, and and as you say, is still visiting him twice a week mm-hmm. in in Limerick mm-hmm. Prison. Mm-hmm. The, the the picture we have of his treatment of Mary, even though he claimed to be in love with her, while he loved his wife, he claimed to be in love with Mary in that famous letter to the Sunday, the Agony Aunt, and the Sunday Independent. His, so he did appear to have an emotional attachment to Mary, if there was any truth in that letter. And it did appear to show some insights into himself that were quite unexpected. Um, but he was also, he also treated her like a, he, he stalked and harassed her for several years. And that sense of control you're talking about. Mm. Tell us a bit about that, Catherine. Well, effectively, you know, we've talked already about the, um, the frame of mind that Mary Larry was in when when her husband died. You know, she was very vulnerable, um, grief-stricken, um, didn't know where to turn. And Pat saw that as an opportunity. He saw her vulnerability. He stepped in and he played it and he used that to his advantage to sort of exert this control over her in terms of uh, getting cash from her, getting sex from her and... Um, sort of effectively trying to to, to sort of mould her into this this mistress that that was that was under his spell. So she's weak. She's going along with all of this, but at some point, you know, she starts to gain a bit of strength and confidence in herself. Friends of hers had told me that at the point just before she met Bobby, you know, her confidence was on the floor. Um, she didn't feel great about herself. Obviously, the secret affair was going on. Um, and and Quark had been fueling all that. You know, he he would tell her that 
if anybody found out about this this affair within the family, her her friends would discard her. You know, she'd be seen as a scarlet woman, effectively. Again, playing on her vulnerabilities. So she meets Bobby, who's a very happy-go-lucky guy who drives a lorry for the quarry and DJs at night and is is uh, he lives from paycheck to paycheck. And probably exactly what you need, really, if you're feeling a bit down, your confidence needs a boost. He loved the dancing and that's what Mary needed in her life so badly then. A bit of fun, out in the open, nothing hidden about it. So she meets up with Bobby and but she also is in the meantime maintaining some kind of relationship with Pat. According to Mary, you know, she had said to him, it's over, you know, she said it had run its course. She was tired of the sneaking around um, and she'd said to him, you know, she, she didn't want to do it anymore and about around about the same time she meets Bobby and um, when that happened it was sort of, it was confirmation for Pat that it was over, you know, couldn't have, couldn't have been any clearer um, and, you know, like you, you mentioned, you know, they're part of this dance scene in Tipperary Town, they're going around to all these dances at the weekend she loves dancing, he loves dancing um, and they're part of this group um, that can, kind of went round at the time. Um, they all knew each other, um, they they socialised together and like you say, it was all out in the open. She didn't have to hide anymore. She told the Larry family, um, they, were, they were pleased that she'd met someone. She told her sons, everybody was happy for her except one person who just... Um, couldn't deal with the fact that that he was he wasn't even number two, but he wasn't ranking anymore in her life. She just wanted she wanted him out of her life, um, and that just would not do. So from there on, Catherine, um, he actually conducted a, um, an assault really on her over several years. Mm. Tell us about that. Well, sort of, kind of from that point on, um, he realizes it's over, um, and the, like you say, her confidence is, confidence is up. Um, she stops giving him money, um, so he's no more he's no more cash supply, and he's in financial difficulty at this time. So the pressure His is big on. Big investments are are falling apart all over the place. Yeah, he had invested heavily in CFDs. They'd gone well for for him up, up until a point, but then a lot of his foreign investments began to go south. So he's in trouble financially. And because this is somebody who likes to keep up appearances, the pressure was on to get money. And Mary, who was his cash cow, was now saying no. So he's feeling the pressure. Um, and he goes to a GP at one point and says he can't sleep at night because of financial strains. And he tells the GP about this affair. Um, so all of this is going on. Um, he, he's not happy that she's in this relationship and that all the Lowry's are accepting of it. Um, at one point, he tells, she, you know, he, he says to, to Mary's brother, you know, uh, this guy's no good for, you know, he's he's our, he's a DJ. He stays out late at night. You know, he's a man for the women, he says, you know, and he's trying to he's trying to put everyone around her off Bobby. Um, but it's not working. You know, they're getting on well. Um, the children like him. Mary likes him. Um, so he decides that he has to get rid of it by by more sinister means, and he sets about this plan of of murdering Bobby Ryan, which really crystallizes when Mary finally loses patience because he is stalking and harassing her and sniffing her underwear, and she gets CCTV cameras installed in order to keep a, to see who is interfering with the house. The alarm is being set off, I think, 17 times maybe in, a, in, in quite a short time. Um, and the, so she has proof 
in front of her and for the guards that it is this guy who is... He's terrorising her in her own home. He is terrorising her. Um, So at that point, Catherine, uh, at some point, Mary decides, she goes to a solicitor and she says, I want want you out of here. I don't want you to have have lease the land anymore. That presumably is a point at which he realises... His he's 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 his fate is is yeah. steaming up towards him. Well, at that point, he's murdered Bobby and he's placed him in the tank. Nobody knows where poor Bobby is. They're all searching still for him. Um, and so this is an underground tank on a Larry farm that only a small club of people knew about. Um, the Larry brothers, one of them was Martin, who's deceased, and Pat. Mary did not know about this um, tank, so he puts him in this tank and and you know um, conceals conceals the tank on the top, put some um, hay bales over it and nobody's any the wiser. And he continues to rent the farm. But uh, against this, you know, really toxic background with Mary, you know, he's sneaking into her house. He's interfering with her underwear. Um, he's just really terrorising her and, uh, you know, she says... Reported to her, her to the, so, uh, the social services at one point. Reported to the social for services. For neglecting her children. Yeah. All of this is going on. Mm. She's telling friends that she's, start, you know, he's, he's actually really starting to make her think that she's losing her own mind. She's really nowhere to turn. Um, you know, she catches him on the CCTV cameras. The guards come up and look at it and they say, listen, we have him. Do you want to do something? We would encourage you to, to pursue this. She says, no, you know, this is family. This is very difficult for me. Um, It'll cause, you know, more hassle for everyone. His son has just died. So I'm going to go to my solicitor and deal with it that way. So she goes to her solicitor and she says, listen, I want to terminate the lease. Um, I want him off my land and I want you to issue the the legal papers to that effect. So he gets notice that he has to quit and he realises that he's going to be off the farm in July of 2013, I think was the date. And that whoever comes onto that farm to lease the land is more than likely going to start up the milking parlour and discover the body in the underground tank. And Pat likes to control everything, so he has to take ownership of this himself and stage the discovery of Bobby Ryan's body. And Catherine, one of the many (laughs) magnificent features of your book is how much we get to learn about slurry and slurry agitation and when's the best time to spread spread slurry in the fields. Why did slurry become such an issue? Slurry became a big issue in this case uh, so much so that um, the prosecuting team in this had a a, a lesson in in spreading slurry from the guards when this was at the very early stages before it got to trial because the crux of Pat's story centred around the fact that he had... um, he had gone to Mary's farm on the day of the discovery to spread slurry, which is something he never did at that farm. It was always done by contractors. But on this day, he decides to do it anyway. And um, in order to, to spread the, the slurry, he needed to agitate it, which is another, more liquid. Yes, yes, another word for mixing um, slurry, adding liquid to it to make it more spreadable. Um, and usually in, in that ca- case on the farm, um, the contractor would bring water in from the river um, and add it to the slurry that way. Um, but Pat told the guardie that he was aware of the fact that there was this underground tank and that there had been a leak in the house and he knew there would be water in this tank. So he thought, well, I'll open the, the tank up and get my water from there. Um, and so he sets about um, organising his, his 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 tanker and his tractor um, to start the agitating. And he goes to, this is his story, he goes to open the tank 
to suck out the water and lo and behold, he discovers the remains of Bobby Rand. That was his story. It didn't stack up, of course, because well, number one... There wasn't enough water No, the there was never enough water. Other details. Uh, he never spread slurry there ever. He couldn't possibly um, have seen the body from yeah. the angle. I mean, the, the, that was so very clever detective yeah. work there. Yeah. Um, so um, he thought he was really clever with his story, which he'd worked on for a long, long period of time. But there were many, many holes in it when, when the guards got down to the, the actual technical um, process of spreading the slurry. It just didn't stack up. Um, but Pat thought he could outfox them all in the end. He couldn't. But it was those technical details that really caught him out. And Catherine, as you, as you described so well in the book, and you actually say this, the general population think the circumstantial evidence is, is almost, is, is much, much less relevant than actual physical evidence. But in this case, it was entirely cir- it was entirely circumstantial. Yeah, it was entirely. He had been very clever from that point of view. Yeah, well, like you said, there was there was no body. Oh, sorry, there was no no weapon. And the guardy didn't know exactly when Bobby had been murdered. There were no forensics. Pat had made sure there were no forensics. Um, and all of this was was heavily built on circumstantial evidence, um, statements from people who knew Pat. Um, there the were the movements of people, the whole um, ba- background story to his affair with Mary. All of it, all of it, when layered together, when put side by side, it just created such a compelling case that the jury just couldn't couldn't ignore. It. There was only one man standing when all of this was put together, even though it was circumstantial evidence. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. You're very generous in your praise of the guards' work, and the detective work and all that sort of thing, Catherine. Is, has, has there ever been... Um, the, Rachel, the Rachel O'Reilly case strikes me as being rather similar. Was there any, I don't think there's any, any, any uh, I think that was circumstantial as well. Yeah, and a lot of it focused on, on the mobile phone evidence, yes. I think, in that case, yes. um, which wasn't a feature in this one. Um, they didn't even have that. Yeah, no, we didn't have that because there was there was a evidence from phones, but most of the activity um, sort of centred around the same place. Um, and Bobby Rand's phone was never discovered, so we you know we don't have we don't have the phone. The phone was never found. His keys to his van were never found. His clothes were never found. So all of that has been discarded by Pat Quirk, and um, we don't know where or what happened to it all. And um, we also don't have a, a murder weapon. Um, so, uh, like I said, a lot of it is, is circumstantial, but it's so strong um, that you, you just couldn't ignore, you know, what, what was put forward. Another element of the book, Catherine, is also about the hoax or fake sightings. Uh, you did a lot of work, really, with 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 people who who work on missing persons um, profiles. Uh, that actually was it caused a lot of problems, didn't it? Yeah, well, from very early on, and this came out in court even, Pat went about spreading a number of rumours about what may or may not have happened to Mr Moonlight. You know, he, he told one of his farm workers that he'd heard, uh, you know, a, a rumour about a Polish um, farm worker being involved. I heard um, that one. Yeah, this 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 was spread all over Tipperary Town, um, in fact. And the crux of it was that this Polish farm worker had had a hand in what had happened. Uh, there was no choice to it. The guards had looked into it, you know, 
absolutely no truth to it whatsoever. But it started to sort of um, cloud people's minds a bit. Um, there were other rumours about, you know, he'd spread about, you know, Bobby going to meet somebody in the woods um, to do with a debt. All of this was, was just was just smoke and mirrors to try and deflect the attention from him. And Catherine, importantly, Mary's name was dragged through the mud in the most horrendous way. I mean, you know, the st- the, he, he, apparently he did steal her passport. We, we have no evidence for that, but a passport did go missing in strange circumstances. Um, there was all the skulking around him suddenly turning up in her house. She'd walk in and there he would be standing behind a second door or something. But then he went and tried to destroy her name in a way that is is, is almost textbook misogyny, mm-hmm. that people believed it. Yeah, well... It's important to remember, you know, um, not only did he murder her boyfriend and before that terrorise her completely for a number of years, made her life a living hell, um, tried to ostracise her from her family. He was doing all of this. Uh, Then he gets, you know, taken in on, um, you know, a a murder charge. He's interviewed um, by Gardy and right from the get-go, he starts to try and pin it on her. You know, he says to him, you know, you know, they discussed it and that they should go and speak to her and that he had suspicions about Mary, always trying to bring it back on Mary. And even in his his trial, it was very clear that he had instructed his defence to go about the same kind of strategy to try and point the finger at Mary at every turn, you know, Which in any way possible. Yeah. Give us yeah. an example. So uh, Mary spent about four days in the box, just a very, very long, long time for any witness to, to get up and, and, and sort of testify. And, um, you know, I think the first day was her her um, evidence in chief was, was dealt with. And she had to talk about very, very intimate aspects of her life. As you can imagine, this is, you know, a sexual affair with her brother-in-law. It was out in the open. It was all over the papers. Everybody in her community knew, her family knew. And then on day two, the defence gets in to start their their cross-examination and they kind of try and subtly, you know, uh, question her her sort of motives toward Pat and the fact that, you know, she basically had come down to Dublin to sort of do him down in the the witness box and denigrate his character. And she rightly pointed out that she wasn't, in fact, on trial, that he was on trial and that he had done... Uh, plenty himself to sort of sully his character um, and they went into details about you know where they had stayed overnight in various hotels when they w- went away for secret getaways um, you know they talked about the fact that you know she had met him in her house you know where her, her children lived um, and the fact that she had entered into this this affair, you know, knowingly that she had, you know, done this all of her own accord, which she admitted. But, you know, the context to all of that was the fact that her husband had just died and that she had, you know, um, all of this money. They would say that, you know, she willingly handed all of this cash over, that a lot of what she had said were were untruths. This was put to her, um, effectively claimed that she was a liar on the stand. And the presumption being that somebody in her position would always be compass mentis and know exactly what they were doing. Um, Another weird one, Catherine, is his mother. I mean, we have the letter to the Agni Aunt in the Sunday Independent, which was written by Pat Quirk himself. His mother rang Liveline to complain about him. 
So this is just another aspect of the story before all of this, obviously, yes. his mother Eileen um, <clears throat> had lived on the on the Quirk family farm in, in Brancha with her own husband, who is known as PJ locally. And um, PJ passed away and Pat took over the farm. He was the only son. Um, it was all pretty standard. And um, his mother, his mother, you know, remained on the original family farm on the property and himself and Imelda built a modern home in the same land. Uh, but eventually there, there comes to be a, a dispute between them over who's living where and effectively um, Pat wants his mother off the, the, the land, the, the the family farm on the land. He wants to rent it out and he wants to put her into a, a you know, just wants her off the land, out of the property. She's furious and decides quite extraordinarily to lift the phone um she's 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 had she's had it out with her her son over this there's lawyers involved there's all sorts going on um, but in the midst of all that she lifts the phone to Joe Duffy to tell her story and proceeds to tell Joe the whole sorry tale and all of Tipperary all knows. of Tipperary knows about this because when I was down there you know they talked they all talk about the day the day they heard Eileen Quirk on the radio you know and they knew straight away I think her first name was given or maybe not even her first name but they all knew the voice they knew the story because everybody knew what was going on because you'd been in and out of with a local solicitor, so everybody knew this was being, you know, this was going on. Um, but the crux of it was that Pat Quirk w- was throwing his own mother out of her house, which says says a lot about the man. Um, and eventually, it was it was sort of tidied up, it was dealt with, and he put her into a, a house in the in the town, you know. Which he also owned. Which he also owned. Um, and all was well. But it, it it wasn't the first time that his mother had done that. I think she'd phoned into Liveline over the year, years in, with regard to other problems that had gone on. She was fond of writing into newspapers like her son. She'd done that on previous occasions. Not specifically about him, but certainly she was depicted as a very, very strong and forthright character and took no, you know, just... just just was was very very um, determined, no, no matter who it was, um, to make sure that, that she was done right. So this was extraordinary in the time at the time. Like and Pat, by all accounts, by talking to people who knew him, was absolutely mortified that she'd gone on the radio. Um, and it was at that point it must have worked because he, he sorted it out with her at that point. You know, yeah, was, Joe Duffy. Was that's why I always say that to people. Ring live line. <laughs> Let's deal with this. It's also uh, the book is also a great insight, Catherine, into 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 early retirement and uh, that whole business around where where parents who are a, farmers who are aging um, hand the farm over to younger mm-hmm. to, to to the next generation mm-hmm. and how it can go horribly wrong. Yeah. So there's a lot in this book actually, apart from the slurry and the detective work and everything. There's also that all that that detail about what happens if if you give your farm to the wrong child, for example. But to bring us up to date now, Catherine. For example, we, we you, you tell us what happened to Pat's. Children, for example, the two remaining sons. Two remaining sons. And one of those sons has effectively stepped into his father's shoes and taken over the farm. He um, left school early, did he? He was at university at the time. He was up and down to the trial quite often. Um, and last time I checked in, he had taken over on the farm. He was running the day-to-day, you know, goings on on the farm with, with Amelda very much at the helm. She goes into prison and reports back to her husband about what's going on, gets feedback, um, takes her orders and does what he says and writes letters detailing their day, their day on the farm, what they're doing and how the business is going. So 
he's had to grow up probably very quickly. Um, and, you know, she's doing the visits to prison. Mary um, left the farm when on, on the day Bobby's body was discovered. She never went back. And that's the truth. You know, she pack, packed up a few things into a few bin liners and left rented properties in various places locally and then built herself a, a family home on some land that her her husband had owned. She's in a new relationship. Um, she's living in Bansha, which is a small little community with, you know, a few local bars. Very happy, apparently, in that locality because she can go up and down to the village um, whereas she was very isolated in the Larry farm. Um, her boys, I've heard, Mary's boys, have no real interest in taking over the Larry farm where their grandmother still lives. So it's been rented out um, and their family home has been rented out. Um, so the future of what happens to that farm is really in Mary's hands. Um, who knows? Maybe she'll sell it. Um, maybe she'll keep it. I don't know. And then, of course, there's Bobby Ryan's family who had the the guilty verdict in May Um and that brought a certain amount of closure to this, but they're left without their dad um, and his two children, Robert and, and who Michelle. they adored. They adored him, yes. and they were extremely close. You can't overstate how close they were. Actually, in particular, himself and Michelle, um, left devastated by all of this because they, from their point of view, the relationship between their father and Mary really probably wasn't going to go anywhere from their, their perspective. They see that this as a case of their father being collateral damage in all of this. Um, he was murdered in the most brutal way and then they had this awful time when they had to search for him high and low and now they know he was there the whole time. So it's devastating for them. They have their own children, you know. Um, there's grandchildren there that he's never even met. Um, so I don't think there's ever going to be complete closure for them on, on all of this, as happens with all victims of crime, you know. Um, they might get a guilty verdict um but it doesn't bring the person back. Catherine, we've met you and I and <laughs> other <laughs> court people um, along the years at, 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 at many notorious uh, murders in the criminal courts. Is this the one that actually encompasses everything? I think this particular story, uh, first, of, first of all, you know, to start, um, I think every so often a case comes along that just captivates people's attention. Um, you know, We've had the, the Graham Dwyer trial. You mentioned Rachel O'Reilly. Um, this year, it was, or this year, it was the Mister Moonlight trial, and because the story had so many elements, you know, there was this this secret affair within a family. Um, there was the whole rural dance scene with Mister Moonlight. There was lies. There was sex. There was land, and then there was this this brutal murder in the midst of it all. Um, but at the heart of it, they, it was ordinary people uh, who were pushed to do the most extraordinary things because of, you know, greed, lust, jealousy. And I think that's what really sort of intrigued people. And then there were all the characters, in particular Mary Larry. People were totally intrigued by Mary Larry, still are. And the fact that at times she was almost identical in photographs to Imelda Quirk. Mm. I mean, th th even that was, th there were several little points of interest there that I think drew people in. But do you think if Bobby Ryan hadn't been known as Mr. Moonlight, would it have gathered quite the steam it did? Obviously, the, you know, with the, the DJ name Mr. Moonlight, you know, it, it, it sort of was interesting, you know, it was sort of maybe 
spark curiosity with people. But it's important that, you know, you remember his family um, were very adamant they wanted him to be known as Mr. Moonlight. It wasn't like they were upset set that that was being used. Um, the fact that he was a DJ probably added another element to it, you know, that he was a DJ called Mr. Moonlight, um, um, that that he had sort of gigged around Tipperary Town um, and she was this, this wealthy kind of widow and they had been, you know, their lives had been thrown together and they'd met at a disco and, you know, maybe they wouldn't have normally met or normally got together. There's all that kind of thing that's going on there, all these different class issues and um, all of that. It just really, it really intrigued people to find out why two people from two different worlds would even get together. And that's the amazing thing about your book. It actually really does bring all, I'm I'm not a true crime reader, but in this case, it is a terrific read, Catherine, that it brings all those threads together. And you get to know a bit more about rural Ireland and that's not quite the sleepy place or just about money farmers or about slurry being spread in the fields and going back to your quiet lunch. There is so it's almost like the agitator in the slurry. It really is extraordinary what goes on behind closed doors. Uh, Catherine, you've brought it all together. You've won awards. It's it's been a number one. I don't know if it still is. It's been a number one. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. So congratulations on all that. And it is actually, above all, it is a great tribute to Mr. Moonlight, to Bobby Ryan and to his family. That comes across very, very strongly. Catherine, thank you so much for coming into the Women's Podcast. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Catherine Fegan. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. And until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.